Well, this evening we meet the Parsha of Kisisa, which uh, I think emotionally is dominated by the, the Cheta Egel, which we will yet, uh, in Mitz Hashem, take time to discuss. But there are plenty of other matters that are also uh, spoken about in Parsha's Kisisa, uh, beginning at the very beginning. As we know, <coughs> we're told in the beginning of Kisisa, as the Pasuk says, Kisisa, it's Perik Lamed Pasuk Yud Beis, Kisisa es Rosh B'nei Yisrael Lifkudeh. Lifkudehem, when you count the B'nei Yisrael, take a head count, so it, sh- it shall not be done directly. That's not something that we do, to count uh, Jews directly. Rather, it should be indirect. As the Pasuk says, Each person should give something in their stead, and that's to be counted. And the consequences, the Pasuk is uh, actually quite explicit. It, it is not left for us to conjecture. That there should not be negif, a plague. That is to say, as Rashi explains, it's based on the concept of Ayin Ra'ah, that if the Jewish people are counted directly, it could lead to very uh, dire consequences, and that is why it is done through something else. Of course, in the beginning of Kisisa, that something else is very specific. It's the half shekel. Now, the half shekel on a yearly basis is its own concern. It is a mitzvah to contribute a half shekel to the Beis HaMikdash, <coughs> even if there is no census at all. So in the beginning of Parshas Kisisa, two concepts meet. Namely, the Bnei Yisrael are to be counted, which, which is not something that happens on an annual basis at all. And therefore, the half shekel, in addition to serving its function as the annual half shekel given regardless, also then forms the uh, proxy representation, which is counted uh, in their stead. But either way, so this now becomes the very well-known idea that we don't count the Jewish people. In fact, this matter is discussed in the Gemara. This is in the Gemara in the beginning of the second peric of Maseches Yuma. <coughs> and the Gemara goes so far as to say that it is usur to count the Jewish people directly. And the Gemara inquires, what is the source for this prohibition? And in response to this, the Gemara offers no less than three suggestions as to what is the source for the prohibition against counting Jews. The first is in Shmuel Aleph. Shmuel Aleph, Perek Yud Aleph, Shaul HaMelech, he assembles an army that is to fight against Ammon. And the Pasuk says, Vayifkedeim Bebezek. He counted them with Bezek. And the Gemara understands that Bezek there refers to shards of pottery. Each person contributed a shard and they counted the shards, Vayifkedeim Bebezek, because they could not count the Jewish people directly, even for purposes of gathering an army. It was still done indirectly through these shards. The Gemara then <coughs> presents 
A second source for this idea, very similar in nature, it's also from Sefer Shmuel Aleph, and it's also about a war of Shaul HaMelech. This time, the war against Amalek, which we will read, Mitz Hashem, quite soon as the Haftarah for Parshas Zohar. And there the Pasuk says, he gathered once again the people, Vayifkedeim batla'im. And he counted them with tela'im. What's a tele? Is a sheep. Tale. So in other words, each person took a sheep. I mean, they had uh, presumably enough, or maybe it came from the, from the king's own um, uh, flock. Either way. And each one would present a sheep in his stead. So that's to be counted and not the soldier. Not the person, once again, demonstrating the idea that one does not count the Jewish people directly, rather indirectly, through something that represents them. Thus far, two sources. Then, (coughs) the Gemara presents a third source. It's from the Navi Hoshea, Perig Beis. Actually, this is the Haftarah for Parshas Bamidbar. But the Gemara quotes the Pasuk with a twist. Because the Pasuk says, The number of the Jewish people will be numerous, like the, the sand on the sea. Which shall not be measured. And shall not be counted. Now the simple reading one could say of the Pasuk is that they will be so numerous so as to make it impossible to count them. But the Gemara has a halachic lens on this pasuk and explains lo yimad v'lo yisafer are prohibitions. They cannot be measured. They cannot be counted. It's forbidden to count them because you can't count Jews for the reason that we said. <coughs> These then are the three sources given by the Gemara in the beginning of the second paragraph of Maseches Yuma for the prohibition of counting Jews. Once again, to list them briefly, either Shaul's war with, um, with, against Ammon, <coughs> where he counted the soldiers through shards of pottery, or number two, Shaul's war with Amalek, where he counted uh, them with sheep and not directly, or the Pasuk in Hoshea, which as per the explication of the Gemara is Lo yimad is a negative prohibition not to count them. And that is that. The big question is the answer to this to the Gemara's question seems to be staring us in the face from the beginning of Parshas Kisisa. I think if ever there was uh, what we would call an elephant in the room, as far as the Suki is concerned, it's this Gemara. The Posigan Kisisa says explicitly, there will be a plague if you count the Jewish people directly. They need to be counted indirectly. That's black on white. And the Gemara raises the question, you know, there's this idea, you don't count the Jewish people directly, where is it from, what is its source, and we go, we go off in all directions. It's a Pasuk in, the, uh, in Shmuel Aleph, or maybe somewhere else in Shmuel Aleph, or maybe it's the Haftarah for Parshish Bamidbar, which is from Hoshea. I mean, everywhere except for what is right in front of us, the beginning of Parshas Kisisa. Any cheder child could have answered that question, and we could have celebrated the Dafyomi Sium 15 minutes earlier. So, what then <coughs> is behind the, 
the Gemara's search for something which seems to be right in front of him. And I'd like to present two classic answers to this question. The Marsha, in his Chidushim, on Maseches Yuma there, says <coughs> that perhaps our Pasuk, even though it's explicit, is not such a good source. But why ever not? Because the Pasuk says, <coughs> you don't want to count the Jewish people directly, there could be trouble, there could be a plague, if you count them directly, through Ayin Hara, or however it works. Says Marsha, let us not forget. When was this Pasuk said? When is the be- with very first counting? It's done after the Cheta Egel. This is an example of a Muktam Mu'ucha Batorah, where the counting is, is after the Cheta Egel, and uh, as we can see, because uh, the money goes, the Machtes HaShekel goes to the Mishkan. I mean, that whole idea is only said to the Jewish people after the, after the uh, Cheta Egel. Well, says Marsha, if this was originally said, this Pasuk in context is said in the wake of the Egel. So as we know, the Jewish people at that time were particularly vulnerable. They were particularly at risk because of the terrible descent of the Egel. All sorts of things happened. They were about to be destroyed themselves. And therefore, even if one sees very clearly that the Pasuk says, do not count them directly, count them indirectly so that there shouldn't be a plague, we don't necessarily know that that is an ongoing concern. Maybe that was a concern for that time, given their particularly vulnerable status immediately after the Egel. But once the Jewish people have gotten back on track, and you've got the second Luchos, and you've got the Mishkan is back, and, 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 and things are back as they are, on an ongoing basis, there's this risk. One couldn't know from that pasuk. To use terminology that might uh, help us here, formulation. How do we know that the beginning of Parshas Kisisa is halacha ledoros? A halacha, an ongoing halacha for, for future generations, maybe is what is called halacha l'sha'ah. A halacha just for that time, given the very fragile nature of uh, the situation and of the state of the Jewish people at that time. And that is why, says Mar Shah, our pasuk couldn't be clearer, but it doesn't help us. We need to find this idea even after the immediate wake of the Cheta Egel. And that's why we look hundreds of years later, even in the time of Shaul, and these go, it's for war, and uh, against Ammon and against Amalek, he's still not counting them directly. Now you see, from there you see, that it is an ongoing concern, not just a one-time concern within the uh, specific situation of the Egel. So that is a very interesting answer of the, of the Marsha as to why we do not present our Pasuk at the beginning of Kisisa as the source for not counting the Jewish people directly. A rather different approach <coughs> is to be found by one of the great poskim among the Acharonim, Sheilus Uchuvos Mekom Shmuel. And he says as follows, it's quite a surprise what he's about to say, but there is no avoiding it. Our question is, 
We're looking for a source for the prohibition of counting the Jewish people directly, and we go to Sefer Shmuel, and we go to Sefer Hosea. What about Parshas Kisisa? Says the Makom Shmuel. It's quite possible that we have taken a liberty, that we have made an assumption or presumption with regards to this Pasuk. We're so well versed and we're so well learned, we look at this Pasuk and it's very clearly saying, when you count the Jewish people, don't count them directly, they need to be counted indirectly. But is it that clear? Says Mekom Shmuel, it is eminently possible to read our Pasuk in a completely different way. Whereby, it does not necessarily forbid counting them directly at all. How so? Because look what the Pasuk says. Let's read together. Pasuk Yud Beis. When you count them, each person should give what's called kofer nefesh, a ransom for his soul, when you count them so that there shouldn't be a plague when you count them. Says Mekom Shmuel, as, as startling as it sounds, is this possible telling you not to count the Jewish people directly? Not necessarily. It could just as easily be read as saying <coughs> that you can count them directly. When you count them, in order to avoid negative fallout, subsequently each person that you counted needs to give Kofer Nafsho. This isn't happening at the time that he presents something and you count the thing and not the person. Maybe you count the person. But in order to avoid any negative uh, repercussions, <coughs> so then subsequent to counting the people directly, each should give a kofer nefesh. And indeed, the word kofer, ransom, always denotes undoing something that seems to have been done, not preempting something from the outset. So it sounds like the Jewish people have been counted. Now, there could be trouble, there could be a negev, no problem. The way that you forestall that trouble is by them then giving a kofer nefesh. That is a completely viable way of looking at the pasuk, and you can't tell. So once again, is it the way we normally understand? They should present their, their half a shekel at the time, and that's what's counted? Or is it rather they themselves are counted, and then they present their half shekel afterwards, as a kofar nefesh, for having been counted. You can't know. And that is why, says the Makom Shmuel, <coughs> the Gemara goes further afield to places where it's clear that what was happening was they were not counted directly, because you can't tell from our Pasuk. Either Vayif Kedem Bevezek, they were counted through these shards, Vayif Kedem Matlaim, they were counted through these sheep, or the explicit they cannot be counted, meaning they cannot be counted directly. So that is a fascinating second answer as to why the Gemara did not propose our Pasuk as the source for the prohibition of counting the Jewish people directly. What's very interesting is, having said all of this, how now do we go back and look at our Pasuk in the beginning of Kisisa? Now that we've gone further afield, we've seen what Sha'ul did, we've seen the Pasuk in Hosea, now go back to the beginning of Kisisa. Are we any more enlightened? There's room to say that we are. 
In other words, as much as if all we had was the Pasuk in front of us in the Chumash, we might not know what to make of it. As per the Marsha, we might not know if this is an ongoing concern. Maybe it's just immediate post-Egel concern. As per the Makom Shmuel, we might not know whether it means don't count them directly. Maybe you can, and they give a Kofar Nefesh afterwards. So all of this is unknown. But then as you bring in those Psukim in the Navi, so now we know that one cannot count them directly. What are the implications from our Pasuk? It now goes back to explain to us which way is the correct way of understanding our Pasuk. Ultimately then, the source of this idea is the beginning of our parsha. We just needed other psukim to corroborate it. And this now <coughs> highlights an idea that uh, we mentioned on a number of occasions of the relationship between the Chumash and Nevi'im and Ksuvim. Namely, Nevi'im and Ksuvim function significantly as a commentary on the Chumash. The very first parish on the Torah is Nevi'im and Ksuvim. And this is something <coughs> that we see where the Gemara, without going uh, too much into the details of the example, but when Rabbi Yochanan, this is in Maseches Tainus and Davtes, when Rabbi Yochanan was told the Posuk in Ksuvim, and he was very taken by this Posuk, a, a Posuk in Mishle, and he was very taken by it. And he, and he exclaimed, is it possible that there's something written in Ksuvim which is also not alluded to in the Torah? It's impossible. And then, he, and then it was then presented, what is the idea, where is, can the idea be found in the Chumash itself? But that very notion, which was axiomatically true for Rabbi Yochanan, there cannot be something that's written in Ksuvim that is not somehow alluded to in the Chumash. Well, why not? Because, what, if, if, if we just say that backwards, what that's telling us, telling us is, everything that's written in Nevi'im and Ksuvim is alluded to in the Chumash, because the role of the Nevi'im and Ksuvim is to explicate things that are alluded to. And therefore, by definition, if something is stated explicitly in Ksuvim, you must be able to find it now, go back to the Chumash and find it. That is the role of Nevi'im and Ksuvim to as function as a perush on the Chumash. And it's for this reason, as the Nitziv says in his introduction to his perush on the Shi'iltus of Rav Achai, <coughs> the Gemara says in the Dorim, and it's uh, also related to this week's parsha. Had, had, had we not sinned with the Egel, Ilmalei Chotu Yisrael, had we not sinned with the Egel, we would not have received Nevi'im and Ksuvim. So says the Gemara which sounds very counterintuitive. After all, it sounds, like, it sounds like we didn't do too badly out of sinning at all. I mean, look what we got. We got Nevi'im and Suvim. And moreover, it sounds like we would have been deprived of all the wisdom in Nevi'im and Suvim had we not sinned. I mean, the whole thing seems, seems absolutely uh, backwards. But the point is, no, says the Nitziv. The reason why, had we not sinned with the Egal, we would not have received Nevi'im and Ksuvim is because we wouldn't have needed Nevi'im and Ksuvim in order for them to do what they do, namely to highlight and to explicate <coughs> themes that are found and alluded to in the Torah because we would have been on a sufficient level to be able to discern them ourselves. 
having fallen from this, the level of Sinai through the Egel, our vision is thus dulled. And now this, the, the, the finer points we cannot be relied upon to extract them ourselves, and that's why we need Nevi'im and Ksuvim. So this is a very uh, fascinating concept. And again, our case is an example. The Pasuk talks about counting, but what does it mean? When does it apply to? And, 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 what, and what exactly is the Pasuk saying anyway in the beginning of Kisisa? The counting and ransom, you can do, you can't do, pay after the fact, pay during, what's counted. All of this is explained to us through the, the Nevi'im and Ksuvim in keeping with that very special function of theirs. So these are some uh, comments with regards to the well-known idea of not counting the Jewish people and the Parshanut discussions were some of the highlights <coughs> as they pertain to the beginning of our Parsha. Now, moving on to, <coughs> to other matters, but still not yet the Egel, we have Shabbos makes another appearance in our Parsha, in Perik Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel. We've had Shabbos in Aseris Adibros, but we have it again, Perik Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel. And what does it say? <coughs> so to start from Pasuk Yud Beis, Vayomer Hashem El Moshe Lemor, Ve'ata, Daber El Bnei Yisrael Lemor, speak to Bnei Yisrael and say, Ach es Shabbosos etishmeru, keep my, keep my Shabbosos, my Shabboses, it is a sign between me and you for your generations, Ladas, to know that I am Hashem who sanctifies you. So Shabbos is called an os. We will, we, yet, we will say in a couple of psukim again that it is an os in a slightly different way, but the first time it's called an os, a sign, is it's a sign between Hashem and the Jewish people. And the question is, what is it a sign of? Whenever something is a sign, it signifies something. What does the sign of Shabbos signify? Because it's referred to as a sign between me and you. Rashi says, on the words, Ki osi a sign between me and you, oskadolahi beinenu. It is a great sign. And you, and you know what, is, you know what the, it, it, you know what it signifies? It signifies me and you. It's referred to as a sign between me and you. That's what the sign is about. Shebacharti bechem. That I chose you. That I have given you, bequeathed to you, my day of rest. That is a sign about you. About how special you are. What is, what is the, the, the background? If we take a step back with regards to this Rashi. What is Rashi saying? He's addressing a very obvious question. Shabbos is about recognizing Hashem as the creator of the world. Recognizing Hashem as the creator of the world is something that is incumbent upon every human being. All nations of the world. One may have thought that uh, Shabbos, therefore, (coughs) should be a universal thing. Yom Tov, I can understand why it's only for the Jewish people. I mean, uh, how much can one celebrate the Seder if you never came out of Egypt and, 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 and so on and so forth? Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. And, and so, okay, so Yom Tov is, is, is Jewish experience. But this is about creation. Everyone needs to be on board with, with, uh, with creation. 
And lo and behold, this, this universal seeming day is given only to the Jewish people. And Rashi says, that's a sign. It's Hashem's special day. Everyone needs to recognize that fact. But to celebrate the day that marks it, that's Hashem's day, and it's only given to the Jewish people. That's a sign between Hashem and the Jewish people. And if we, if we may persist and ask, why is it so? And this the Meshachachma asks in Parshas Vaischanan, as do many others. Why is it that the, that the, the day of Shabbos, is in, which seems to have a, a, a worldwide message, is entrusted only to the Jewish people? And he answers that the point of Shabbos, which is commemorating the point of the creation of the world, is that the world isn't something that was just, quote-unquote, created, and then abandoned, as if to say, to note Hashem as the creator of the world, and that's it, without any notion of, of any connection or plans for that world with which he is involved. So that's not the concept of creation that, that we're talking about at all. <clears throat> Rather, creation with a capital C is creation with a purpose, creation and therefore, creation and then. And the therefore is, Hashem created the world because he has plans for it, that the world should operate in a certain way, there should be room for the divine presence there, people should live their lives in accordance with Hashem, and, and, and he is interacting and supervising the entire process. That's the full message of Shabbos. And this brings us to the Jewish people. It says Meshachachma, the reason why the Jewish people are singled out as the ones to fly the flag, really, for, for Shabbos, and to keep Shabbos is because they are living testimony to what Shabbos is all about. The national experience of the Jewish people from the beginning, against all odds and against all foes and against all forces of history, and from, from the outset as they were taken out from Mitzrayim and continue to be guided, they are an embodiment. Their very lives are testimony to what Shabbos is saying. That Shabbos is Hashem created the world and he's still involved. <coughs> and if you wish to see that Hashem is still involved, so look at the Jewish people. They're still here. When they're doing better, you see it clearer. But even when they're not doing better, their very existence is, is an impossibility. It, it, it shouldn't be. And that's what makes them the perfect keepers of Shabbos. Because their own experience expresses its message. The full message of Shabbos is, <coughs> Hashem is involved in the world. Says the Jewish people, look at us. There's no other explanation, if not for what Shabbos is saying. And it's for this reason that the Jewish people and Shabbos, they're connected. And this connection is referred to by us in our davening. We refer to Shabbos as a bride. Boikala. Boikala. That's from Lechadodi, but it's based on the Gemara in Babakama, the, 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 uh, the Amora, Rabbi Yana. He used to, that's how he used to receive Shabbos. Boikala. Why is Shabbos called a bride? Because the Jewish people and Shabbos are, are spouses, because they're connected on this mission of proclaiming Hashem's supervision, creation and supervision and guidance of the world. That's what Shabbos is dedicated for, and that's what the Jewish people are all about. Their very existence proclaims that. And that makes the Jewish people and Shabbos spouses. 
So when we say Bowie Chala, we're welcoming the day that is dedicated to the same message that our, that our very existence bespeaks. And <coughs> it's very interesting to, to see how in this regard, we say in Kiddush that Shabbos is also Zechel Etzias Mitzrayim. Which, which has baffled uh, certain commentators. We begin by saying it's Zikaron Lamasebereshis, right? It commemorates Masebereshis, which it does. I mean, that's what Shabbos is for. And we say it's Zechel Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It also commemorates Yitzhak Mitzrayim. But how? Shabbos is before Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It's not, it's not affected by it, seemingly. Why do we say that? But the point is that in addition to recalling uh, the creation of the world, it is a Zechel Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because only the Jewish people keep Shabbos, the Jewish people who came out of Mitzrayim and who are therefore qualified to keep Shabbos in the full sense of what Shabbos represents. And what's fascinating is, and this uh, my cousin told me, Rabbi Melech Kuperman, uh, we were reviewing certain uh, comments and questions and explanations that Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach had said to him. He used to walk with Rabbi Shlomo Zaman to Shul every morning, <coughs> And, and Rosh Hashanah would notice these things. We say them the whole time. But in Kiddush on Friday night, there seems to be a blatant repetition. Because we begin by saying, Asher Kiddushanu b'mitzvah v'ratzavanu. Okay. V'shabas kodshu b'avav ratzonin chilanu. Hashem bequeathed to us his holy Shabbos. With love and with desire. V'shabas kodshu b'avav ratzonin chilanu. So there, we've said it. Then we conclude Kiddush by saying, V'shabas kodshecha be'ava uvratzon hinchaltanu. Which is simply a repetition of what we said earlier on. We said, V'shabas kodshecha be'ava uvratzon hinchaltanu. And then nochamal, V'shabas kodshecha be'ava uvratzon hinchaltanu. It's the same thing. Why are we repeating? Says the Shlomo Zalman, we're not repeating. We're restating. How so? Because the first time we say it in the third person, what he did, the Shabbos Kodsho, his holy Shabbos, he, he bequeathed to us Ba'ava But the second time we say the Shabbos Kodshecha, your holy Shabbos, there is an amazing turning point in Kiddush where we turn from, from referring to Hashem in the third person of what he did to the second person, what you did. And what is that turning point? when we move from Zikaron Lamasa Bereshis to Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The beginning of Kiddush, it's leading up to recalling the creation. The creation that Hashem is something that he did before we existed and then there's nothing, we weren't involved or in any way connected to it. So in that regard, it's in the third person. But then we say, but it's Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And now we're involved. Very much so in the full message of Shabbos. And in terms of our connection to Hashem, it's not a, a detached creator, but rather an involved supervisor. And that's reflected by repeating everything we said, but now in the second person. At a certain point in Kiddush, about roughly halfway through, we stop talking about Hashem and we start talking to Hashem. And that's what, that's what Yitzhak Mitzrayim did. It gave us that connection to be able to do that. It's a, a very, very profound uh, insight into the Kiddush on Friday night. And it's for this reason 
that the concept of malchus, of kingship, is very closely connected with, um, with Shabbos. We say, Yismechu b'malchuscha, Shomer Shabbos v'kerei onik. Those who, who, who keep Shabbos and enjoy Shabbos, they will, they will delight or rejoice in Hashem's kingship. Why is Hashem's kingship mentioned specifically with regards to, to Shabbos? <coughs> I mean, Hashem's kingship obviously is never out of place in the Siddur, but why is it specifically mentioned with regards to Shabbos? Because, once again, the full meaning of Shabbos is really about kingship. Because uh, kingship is, 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 is supervision. What does the king do? The king runs and supervises. So, another, and again, the full meaning of what Shabbos represents is not only creator, but also supervisor. That's what makes Shabbos a day of Malchus. And those that enjoy Shabbos and connect with this point will all the more so rejoice in the full revelation of Hashem's Malchus uh, in the future. Yismachu b'malchusacha. So these are some uh, fascinating ideas that, that emanate from this very simple uh, looking Rashi who says that the Shabbos is a sign between us. It's a, it, says, it says, I wouldn't say as much about the Jewish people, but it also about the Jewish people as well as uh, talking about Hashem, even the day of Shabbos. Well, having spoken about a couple of matters uh, from the beginning of the Parsha, the counting of the Jewish people, matters pertaining to Shabbos, we come to the Egel and specifically to the episode of the smashing of the luchos, and that is to be found in Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Yud Tes. And so the, so the Jewish people um, have made the Egel, Moshe comes down, he's holding the luchos. But Pasuk Yud Tes changes everything. <coughs> it was when he came to the camp. <coughs> he sees the he sees the Egel. He sees the dancing, as we've noted in the past. To do a sin is one thing. To dance around it is, uh, is an altogether different uh, problem. And <coughs> Moshe becomes angry. <coughs> he then throws the, the, the luchos from his hands by Shabero Samtacha Sahar and he and he smashes them. <coughs> a very, very traumatic event in on so many different levels. A very difficult decision, seemingly, or sort of very weighty decision, to break the luchos. On a certain level, on a simple level, we understand Moshe broke the luchos because the Jewish people aren't deserving of the luchos. But it's very interesting that Moshe received the luchos and he didn't just put them to the side or give them back until further notice, but rather smash them to pieces. So how are we to understand this? And this matter is discussed by by one of the uh, major discussions in the Meshachachmah. Uh, I think of uh, in the entire Torah, and it really reflects something that he echoes on on numerous other occasions also. But let us focus on what he is saying here. We find, says Meshachachma, that uh, there are many things in the Torah that we would call holy. There are holy times, and there are holy objects, and there are holy places, and kedusha really accrues 
to many, many things. I mean, what are we dealing with now? Uh, the Mishkan. I mean, everything in the Mishkan is holy with, with all that goes with that. What is most important to remember, and of course we all know that it's true, but important for, for it to be emphasized and, and to be in our consciousness, <coughs> is that there is no object that is inherently holy in the sense that it is almost independently holy. Holiness is always of something that anything that has it receives it from Hashem. Holiness is beamed is a quality that is beamed into something by Hashem. So if an object is holy, it received it received its kedusha from somewhere. It's not it's not intrinsic. That is to say, it's not inherent, it's not self-generated, and it's not in any way independent of Hashem's holiness. It's always reflective of the, of the Kedusha that it received from Hashem. And this is something which the Gemara itself emphasizes. The Pasuk says, uh, in two places actually, in Parshas Kedoshim and Parshas Bahar, U-Mikdashi tira'u. There's a special mitzvah. U-Mikdashi tira'u. You shall be in awe of my Mikdash. Mora Mikdash, we know this halakha is about it. One doesn't act in a base of Mikdash or in a shul. The way one acts, shul is Mikdash Mat, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, as we know. So, Umikdashi Tiro, there is a special mitzvah of being in awe of the Mikdash. That's explicit in the Pasuk. And the Gemara clarifies. The Gemara Maseches Yevamas on Dafavav. Lomen ha Mikdash atayare. Or your awe in the Mikdash. It's not from the Mikdash. It's from the one who commands concerning the Mikdash. Easy to forget, or possible to forget. You're surrounded by objects. The things that we see, sometimes it's, it's uh, easy to ascribe certain intrinsic qualities to them. And along comes the Gemara and says, there's only one thing that you're really in fear of, in awe of, when you're in the Beis HaMikdash, and that is Hashem who commanded concerning it. Everything, all of those objects are vehicles for that Kedusha. They are recipients of that Kedusha, and therefore one acts with them with reverence accordingly, but always in <coughs> cognizance of what the source of their Kedusha is. And the reason why this is so important, it's a very, I think, what we could call a pure idea. But the reason why it's so important is because it can very easily lead, once you have the notion or fall prey to the notion that an item has uh, in, intrinsic Kedusha, that is to say, although we, Halacha speaks about Etzema Kedusha, if something receives Kedusha from Hashem, it has it. But, when, but what, we're, what we're disavowing is the notion that it has independent Kedusha. It just has Kedusha because it exists. It didn't get it from anywhere. If a person would come to view objects in that way, so then they might to view, come to view those objects as so, uh, maybe alternative sources of power. And this is something which was voiced by the Plishtim. We know for a, uh, for a certain while, the Plishtim, they captured the Aron. This is again the beginning of Sefer Shmo. They captured the Aron, but, but then they, got, they started getting plagues, and they realized it was because they captured the Aron. But what did they say? Famous, famous quotation. It's in the, it's in the Pasuk. Who will save us from this, from this almighty deity? But they're looking at the Aron. 
In other words, they, they took the Oron and, and, and here's the cause and effect and now they're being punished. Their notion was it's the Oron that's punishing them. The, 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 there was no notion of seeing an abstract ultimate deity behind the Oron. The, the Oron is what's in their possession. They're suffering. The Oron is responsible for it. And they called the Oron this, this, this almighty deity. And it's for this reason, says Meshachachma, that um, Avodazara really took hold. The notion of, of worshipping an object, it, which is, sounds so strange, but, but the, the point is, it's an object that embodies a concept, <coughs> and, and, and then the object itself was, because it's a sensory thing, you can hold it, it's in your house, and, and, and people more were drawn towards ascribing power to things because this, this thing has this sanctity now, so now it has power, so then it became an object of worship. Now that all sounds very extreme as, as full-on Avodazara, but the truth is, says Meshachachma, that is part of what led to the Cheta Egel. This was a contributing force to the Cheta Egel. The Jewish people had not fully shaken off the pagan uh, influence of, of Mitzrayim. They were fundamentally redeemed, but not 100% emancipated from, from that aspect. It was, it was a, a notion, a tendency, or a habit, or whatever it would be called. And in a moment of crisis, they went back to it. And, and here they were, uh, worshipping an eagle, and saying about the eagle that this did things for them, even though they created it, because it's an object. And there is even a further point, and, and, and the Meshachachma does not uh, hold back at all on, on this. The Jewish people made an eagle, an idol, in, as a replica or a replacement, more correctly, for Moshe. I mean, that's clear. When Moshe, because Moshe went missing, they felt they needed something else, and they, and they came up with an object. But if an object is an acceptable replacement for Moshe, it can only be that to a certain degree they had also been relating to Moshe in that way. If one can use the expression objectifying him. And it's very telling that when they originally approach Aaron to see this, if you don't ascribe intrinsic or independent power to Moshe... So then why would you replace him with an object? Unless Moshe himself was, was in, uh, objectifying. In Pasuk Aleph, Perik Lamed Bey's Pasuk Aleph, the very beginning of this chapter, it says, The people saw that Moshe was delaying. They assembled or congregated around Aaron. Make for us, Elohim, some force. That should then go before us. Why? And see what they say now. Because this person, Moshe, an, an unusual description, this Moshe, the person, from a certain point of view, maybe he was more of a this than a person, who took us out of Mitzrayim. We don't know what happened. The... the, the, the 
entrance, the threshold of the of the Chet Egel, was refer- describing Moshe as the one who took them out of Mitzrayim. And indeed, when Hashem appraises Moshe of what has happened in Pasuk Zion, we find this is also repeated. Pasuk Zion, Vayidaber Hashem Moshe, Lech Reit, go down. Kishiches Amcha, because your nation has acted destructively. Asher Ha'eleisa Me'eretz Mitzrayim, that you took out of Egypt. Why is Hashem reiterating that point? Because what he's saying is they've come to relate to you in that way as the one who took them out of Mitzrayim and that's why they've substituted you with another object. And it's parenthetically, but it's for this reason that the, the, the Vilna Gaon says that Moshe's name is not mentioned on Seder night just once and by the way in order to be sure, as one tells the story, one tells the story of his agency. But when one gives thank- a night of thanksgiving, Moshe is, is conspicuously absent. It's amazing. From the Pesach story. Because in that regard, he's, that's the point. He's not part of the Pesach story. Not as a source, only as an agent. And all of this now confronts Moshe as he sees the Jewish people have made, have made the Egel. Now he's holding the Luchos. And he breaks the luchos. Why does he break the luchos? Surely, once they see the luchos, they'll won't they come around? Isn't it? Uh, isn't it worth hoping? Why? Why are the luchos smashed? Says the, says Meshachachma, because the Jewish people are clearly still of the notion that objects have intrinsic and independent sanctity and power. If you show them the luchos and nothing else changes, the luchos will become the next ego. You will just have substituted one object for another, as surely as they substituted an object for you. And that's why something much more traumatic needed to be done. Much more a fundamental shake-up needed to happen. Moshe breaks the luchos, which is almost unthinkable. What holier object ever existed than the Luchos? Fashioned by Hashem, written by Hashem, containing his, the Aseris Hadibros. I mean, this must be the most consecrated and sanctified object in the history of the world. And Moshe threw it down and broke it into pieces. And what is he saying to Bnei Yisrael? This is what Kedusha is. Kedusha only ever exists in something as received from Hashem, as bestowed by Hashem, in keeping with his purposes. But if, but if that were not to be true, and at currently it is not the case, because that concept is being abused, so then the, 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 then the luchos are just a, they're just a piece of rock. And, and, and that's really what, uh, that, what brought about the, the shake-up for, for the Jewish people. By breaking the luchos, Moshe was able to reclaim and redeem the concept of Kedusha. That Kedusha comes from Hashem. Whether it's the Kedusha of Moshe Rabbeinu, whether it's the Kedusha of the luchos, and it's an ongoing thing. And what's amazing is, as the, as the Meshachachma concludes, you have this incredible um, coexistence. Because as we know, Firstly, Hashem, Hashem said, Yashakoach to Moshe for breaking the luchos. In the beginning of Perak Lamed Dalet in our parsha, 
he says, uh, the f- refers to the first, Lucho says, Asher Shibarta. Asher, the Gemara Darshans, as Ishur. Yasher Kochacha Shibarta. If you ever wondered what are the origins of the express, of the phrase Yasher Kochacha or Yasher Koach, it's the very first Yasher Koch was given by Hashem to Moshe on breaking the first Luchos. Hashem said, you did a good thing because the situation could not continue as it was and the Luchos were in danger of becoming the next eagle. So good for you that you broke them. Here's another set of Luchos. And now what, what resides in the Aron, says the Gemara, both sets. And that's the message. Because compare them. The first set of Luchos was, was, was fashioned by Hashem and it lies in pieces. The second set of Luchos was fashioned by Moshe and they're intact to teach you it's all about whether Hashem bestows Kedusha into something. It's not about its origins and it's not about anything other than being aligned with, with Hashem's will. And so what emerges is that until further notice, the Luchos were of incalculably greater service to the Jewish people, broken, than they would have been whole. And that is the lesson of Shavir Saluchos. Very, very major discussion of the Meshachachah. And I think there is room to, to now go back to, to what we were uh, talking about before the Shavir Saluchos, before the breaking of the Luchos, and that's Shabbos. And to note, the Torah's description of Shabbos immediately precedes the Cheta Egel. That's very interesting. The beginning of Perik Lamed Aleph, from Sukkim uh, Yudbeis Yud Gimel, all the way till Sheini is Shabbos, the very next thing, Cheta Egel. What does that tell us? What's the Smichos Parshios here? The juxtaposition of these two things. Because Shabbos really, in the way that, <coughs> that, that we were discussing it, it is the, the antidote to the Egel. Because the eagle is saying that there are certain things and they have perhaps intrinsic or independent power. But what is Shabbos? Shabbos, in the full sense of the word, is Hashem not just as creator, but also supervisor, directly. And had we absorbed fully the message of Shabbos, the more one... uh, relates to (coughs) and recognizes Hashem's direct involvement in the world, the more one is able to be free of ascribing intrinsic Kedusha and power to anything that exists. Because if Hashem is involved on an ongoing basis, so these things are receiving Kedusha on an ongoing basis, and for reason. But it's always reflected. It's like light. When the source of light is turned off, nothing retains light. It can reflect, but only as long as, 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 as the, the light is being, being done to it. And so the Torah moves from Shabbos to the Egel, as if to say Shabbos in the full sense of the word, fully, fully connecting and, and, and relating to Hashem's involvement in the world, would have obviated the Egel, would have rendered it impossible. But as things happened, the mitzvah of Shabbos was not yet 100% absorbed. And thus the Egel happened. But what's very interesting is, after the Egel, we find a repeat 
of something else, and that is the Yomim Tovim, the Shalash Regalim. That's in Perik Lamedalet, <coughs> Perik Lamedalet from, from Pasuk Yudches, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, and that's very interesting because we've already been introduced to them in Parshas Mishpatim, in brief, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. And now they're back again after the Egel. But why, does, why is Yom Tov reiterated? Why is Yom Tov repeated after the Egel? Because Yom Tov is the easier antidote to the Egel. The Egel ascribes independent power and Kedusha to certain things, in a sense, moving away from a direct connection to Hashem. The easiest way for the Jewish people to, to connect with Hashem and to, and to recognize his supervision are the festivals that celebrate that supervision. Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, both historically, Yitzhak, Mitzrayim, etc., and on an ongoing basis, the harvest and, and, and all that goes with that, their own experience connects them to Hashem. So as connectors, the Yom Im Tovim are back. But what's also interesting is, when they come back, they bring Shabbos back with them. Because at the end of the day, everything that the Yom Im Tovim represent, historically, and in, in our national experience, our connection to Hashem, is already there in Shabbos. It's just expressed historically in the Yom Im Tovim. That's why Rashi says in Parshas Emor, quoting the Medrash, if a person doesn't keep Yom Tov, it's like he doesn't keep Shabbos. Because if he doesn't keep Yom Tov, he's, he's missing the full point of Shabbos, which is not only creation, but also involvement and supervision. But when you have the Yom Tovim, it really brings back Shabbos in full measure. And what's very interesting is that Pasuk Yudches starts, starts Yom Tov, so I guess we've shifted from Shabbos to Yom Tov, but we haven't, because as soon as we spoke, finished speaking about Pesach, in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, it actually interjects Shabbos before we move on to Shavuos. Pasuk Kaf Aleph of Perik Lamadalet, Sheishis Yomim Tavot of Tishbos. That's Shabbos. That's unusual. I think the most we've ever seen in terms of having them together is first Shabbos and then the Yomim Tovim. Right? Shabbos is Tchilala Mikra Ekodesh. First Shabbos and then the Yom Tovim. But here we start Yom Tov and then we mix Shabbos in and then continue with the Yom Tov to show how, how, how intermingled they are, how their themes harmonize. So when the Yom Tovim are repeated, they bring Shabbos back again. And what I think is most fascinating is that if, if we understand that just before we hear the description of the Cheta Egel, to recap, we have the mitzvah of Shabbos. And the calling of Shabbos is to connect with Hashem as creator and supervisor in a way that would make something like the Egel impossible. In the event, it was not fully responded to and the Egel happened. So when it comes back, firstly we have Yomim Tovim, which are an easier connector for us because it's our own experience with Hashem as our, our savior, supervisor and guide. But it brings Shabbos also. This section of the Torah, the second half of Parshas Kisisa, in addition to being read this week in Parshas Kisisa, is also read on two other times of the year. Pesach and Sukkot. Because it mentions the Shalish Regalim. 
But when on Pesach and Sukkot is it read? Shabbos Cholamoid. It's a Shabbos Tikalene. Because in the same way that the Torah is using the, the, the Moadim in order to reclaim Shabbos, so the point on each Moed, which is most appropriate to have this laning, is on the Shabbos of the Moed. Because what has the Moed done for, for the Shabbos that, that, that's inside? And, and if we take the message from that Shabbos, which is, which is uh, bolstered and, and really amplified by, by the Yom Tov, that should be a message that stays with us from all the Shabbases, from Pesach to Shavuot, from Pesach to Shavuot, from Shavuot to Sukkot, and from Sukkot to Pesach. So this is really, uh, I, I think, just to see the, the thematic flow and progression of the various parts of the, of the Parsha, it takes the concept of the Cheto Egel out of history, that is to say, and, and, and shows us how it, it is an ongoing concern in its, in its ultimate uh, sense. And, and, and then leads us to, I think, a renewed appreciation, which is always of immense value, of Shabbos, which we have every, every, every week. And we say the words, Yismechub HaMachuscha, we call Shabbos our bride, and all of these things. But the more we, we fundamentally and wholly uh, connect with, with what Shabbos represents, I mean, that is something that, as the Pasuk says, Ladas, Ki Ani Hashem Mekadishchem, it shows the special nature of the Jewish people, and the more the Jewish people and Shabbos will reinforce each other, the more we will, we will rise to, in full measure, to our, 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 the, our status as a nation that Hashem chose, and that's something, as we say in Shabbos, which should, which should lead to the ultimate Yakir of Anech of Yadu, Ki and should lead to the, to, to the Geula that Shabbos is always pointing towards in one form or another, which should come. Amen.